Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. All right, crew, check it. Dog events are happening. For exhibitors who are able and willing to attend these events, it feels as if our tribe has been reunited once again. Meanwhile, for folks who are continuing to feel safest staying at home and away from crowds, and for folks who are driving long haul between far-flung events, I gotcha. I've been working hard to bring you all podcast episodes that help you feel connected to our larger community and offer opportunities for education and entertainment, no matter how you have managed through this truly overwhelming year. One of my favorite events this year is the monthly virtual Pure Dog Talk After Dark for patrons of our podcast. Anybody can join this fabulous community of dog enthusiasts by visiting the website and clicking on the Become a Patron link on the homepage. And while you're there zooming around on the site, you might think about checking out our shopping tab too. We've linked dog show vendors from all around the country so you can help support them during this really grueling loss of income suffered due to a lack of events. There's even a swag link that lets you order your Pure Dog Talk t-shirt, sweatshirt, fan case, mask, <laughs> ringside towel, and so much more. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you every day to make sense out of everyday things. To add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box. To bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. So check out the links at www.puredogtalk.com. Your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and one of my favorite returning guests with whom I have tremendously fabulous conversations, Amanda Kelly of Fuegel Toy Manchester Terriers in Canada, is here to join me. And Amanda and I were having a really interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago, and I said, okay, okay, stop. We have to actually record this because <laughs> this, is, this is good stuff. So that's what we're doing. We're bringing you our conversation, which I know you guys enjoy. And I think the interview, right? The conversation that we have with Amanda on and some of her other guests is important because it makes us think. It made me think the conversation. So today's topic is society changes. So purebred dogs as we know them today were basically the concept of it of breeds as we know them versus land race or the concept of a purebred dog 
has only developed really in the last few hundred years. It has. And really only since the late 1800s, right? That's right. And you know, the whole evolution of the dog world, I think in that era is so key to understanding our own past as a group of people breeding and showing dogs. And it's not just about what happened in those late 1800 Victorian era period as it relates to the development of dog breeds, but there's kind of like a wider societal thing that was going on at the time when you have the introduction of the concept of Darwinism. Mm -hmm. Darwin's famous book, you know, was published in 1859. And the Victorians embraced that concept of evolution with intent, with real fervor. You know, they loved the idea of creating things and categorizing things and perfecting things. And that I think it's important for us to recognize today that that is where the concept that we're working with today had its roots. And I think the other piece of this, and this is why I always say that purebred dogs are history and they're art. So they're all of these things sort of rolled together. So it's the societal piece, the Victorian society. But think about this also. This is the point, and this is very much a thing in my breed specifically, the concept of the aristocracy, the landed gentry being the only ones who had dogs, in particular, in my case, hunting dogs. And they would have a setter to point and a spaniel to flush and a retriever to retrieve, and they could have kennels full of dogs. And so a lot of the development of what we call the continental versatile hunting dogs happened as a result of sort of the industrial revolution. That whole thing Mm -hmm. is happening all at the same time. And now, if you will, the common man, the average guy, the average family could afford to feed a dog. And so they started developing these continental breeds that were designed to do all of the things. They could afford to feed maybe one dog, but they couldn't afford to feed 15 or 20 or 100. And so that break in society from the landed gentry and the serf, if you will, to the development of what we know today as a middle class that did not exist at all at the time. Yeah, you know, the concept of dog breeds, I think, is an interesting one. There's so many different paths to the establishment of a breed, right? You know, we have lots that are really ancient. We have many that are actually relatively new. Yep. And before this Victorian era and the industrial revolution and all of those things that were happening in that period of time, we looked at dogs more for what they could do. Yes. We were selecting for behaviors that we wanted. Yes. And, you know, as you said, the aristocracy and very specific echelons of society could afford to have very specifically purpose-bred animals. Right. But whole groups of dogs on which those specific breeds were built harken back to an earlier time when we needed dogs that could do, you know, more generalized things. Right. So, yeah, I totally agree. I think that there's a wealth of different paths that bring us to where we are today. Well, if you look at the greyhound type and the mastiff type, Mm -hmm. those types of dogs, and now that general body shape is splintered almost, if you will, into a variety of noticeable, recognizable, reproducible breeds. Mm -hmm. 
And so the idea, I think, is for me, the fascination, and I say this all the time on the podcast, you and I were just talking about this, dogs are history and they are art. They are both of those things. Absolutely. And if you look to the Ibethan hound and the pharaoh hound, if you look to the Afghan hound and the Saluki, if you look to the black and tan terrier that is the Manchester essentially unchanged to today, all of these breeds did things. And I love looking at where, you know, we talked about this. The foundation of dog shows was because two guys with hunting dogs called Joe Blow over from the bar and said, which one's the prettiest? That's basically how dog shows started. So you added in the element of appearance to the element of function. That's right. You know, one of my very favorite quotes from one of Canada's most famous judges, Dr. Dick Mean, in an interview that he did after judging Westminster Best in Show in 2016, he said something that I think it stayed with me. I'm sure it has stayed with anyone who heard it because I actually think that if anyone out there embroiders, they should perhaps put this on a pillow somewhere. It's a little long. might take a while to embroider. He said this, purebred dogs are the only living museum of mankind's journey on earth. Yes. I think that that is such a profound statement because it speaks to two things for me, and there's a tension between them. One is it talks about the reasons why preservation is so important. We preserve our breeds because we love them, which is always going to be the number one reason that we do anything in the dog world. But there's a broader purpose. There's a broader service to society in preserving some of these breeds, particularly the very old ones, in that we are the ones who are maintaining this living museum. We are the curators of the purebred dog. That's right. So we are the ones who can show to a 10-year-old interested in ancient Egypt a dog that maybe looks exactly like a dog that sat next to Cleopatra. Yes, it's carved on the wall. That's right. (laughs) We can talk about the history of a country and we can put a living artifact in front of people. In my personal life, I deal a lot with history. Do not get me started about Canadian soldiers who served during the First World War, or we will be here all night. I love it. But because of my, you know, my job, which is to try to tell those stories, to try to interest people today in the modern world in the stories of soldiers who served and sacrificed a hundred years ago. Right. I think the importance of artifacts and touch points that allow people to not just read about something, but to have an emotional and physical connection is maybe a little bit more present for me when it comes to dogs. Because I think that as a tool for telling the story of our history on this earth, dogs have a really particular way of doing that because they speak not only to the things that they did for us, which in turn tells us about the way that we lived in different times and in different places in our history. They also allow us to actually feel a connection to that time. 
that you just can't get from words on a page. Absolutely. And I mean, this has been such a piece of my journey with Pure Dog Talk. So getting to have this conversation right now, I'm just kind of like getting goosebumps because this is the point. I mean, this is the point. Right. But the other side of that, Laura, is that what Dr. Mean said also speaks to the concept of evolution. Yes. You know, all of these animals, whether they were developed in one part of the world or another part of the world, they all come from a place. We didn't arrive in 2000 with 400 plus dog breeds or how you want to count them. We didn't arrive here at this point in time with all of these dog breeds that just magically rained down from on high. These were purposely developed animals in whatever area of the world and for whatever reason they were developed. They reflect the hand of the humans who were the ones that were choosing them, whether we're talking about 500 years ago when they were being selected for behaviors that helped people actually, you know, live. I mean, people made their living. They relied on these animals in order to be able to put food on the table. So whether you're talking about that or you're talking about perhaps a companion dog that was developed by the Victorians because it was cute sitting on a pillow. It doesn't make any difference why it was developed. But as part of that living museum, we are also reflecting that we have developed these animals through this concept that I talked about earlier, which is this idea of evolution with intent. Right. And so evolution with intent gets really to the meat of what we wanted to talk about today, which is that society changes. So 2021 is a whole lot different than 1821 or 1921. And it has different things that are important to the people in the society. And I think it is noteworthy that dogs in some format or another are still one of those things. They are one of the through lines of all of our history. Yeah. You know, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, and I have to say, I always enjoy when we have a conversation and and it gets to the good part and you say, okay, stop, because we have to talk about this on tape. (laughs) Right. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about the concept of preservation breeding because it's a very omnipresent thought in in my world because I have a breed that relies 100% on preservation breeders and specifically on show breeders in order to exist any longer. There are no random people breeding Manchester Terriers as pets. It's not a thing. Well, they don't need them to kill rats, although I could borrow one every now and then. That'd be okay. (laughs) That's right. So the concept of preservation breeding is a really important one and thinking about what is it that we're preserving Mm. And how do we do that most effectively? So one of the things that's always struck me, and I don't have an answer for this question, but it's always struck me as maybe an interesting topic to explore, which is why do some breeds go extinct? Right. You know, there's some breeds where there's, you know, if we look at, at history, I'll give you an example. The English White Carrier. Yes. Which existed toward the end of the 1800s and was fairly popular. 
probably behind a good number of breeds, terrier breeds today. Mm-hmm. It went extinct in the late 1800s. And the reason given is that it suffered from health problems. Mm. Valid reason. I can look at that and say, okay, well, you know, if it had crippling health issues and they couldn't be solved, then I can certainly understand why that breed would not continue. Then you look at some other breeds, you know, the Paisley Terrier, for example. Right. There's many examples of breeds that have gone extinct over the years. And I just think to myself, why did they disappear? What need were they not filling? Or was there something about them that made them less appealing? One of my favorite is the otter hound. We're down to, is it, I can't remember, I'd have to go back and listen to my podcast, but something like 700 individual animals in the entire world. We're talking less than pandas and tigers and rhinos. And you're talking about a large hound. They have a lot of hair. They make a lot of noise. They aren't notoriously tidy, right? They don't fit in a modern apartment. They hunted otters and they don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so the concept of preserving what the otter hound is as the otter hound is speaking to the history that it represents is really powerful to me. Yeah. And I look at my own breed and I'm maybe not the best person to assess why they have failed to thrive in the last 50 years or so. You know, I can make some guesses. I personally think they're perfect and everyone should have one, but I might be a little biased. You could be a little bit biased. Yes, dear. It's possible. It's possible. I mean, they're small and they're smooth haired and they're black faces. You know, people tend to not be crazy about dogs that have black faces. Oh, interesting. In general, you will see, I think many of my Doberman friends would agree that, you know, the black eyes on a black face, people who tend to be nervous of animals, they'll often find that to be a little bit difficult. Interesting. They're just not little and fluffy. And that is, in a large degree, what lots of companion people looking for a dog in that size range are looking for. Is the fluffy. Right. See, I think they're ideal for a lot of people because they're no maintenance. There is no hair. There's no grooming. When I was showing them, it's a spit shine. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, crew. Looking to enhance your breeding program? Spring into action with Embark's all-inclusive DNA testing for breeders. One Embark for Breeders kit provides breed-relevant genetic health tests, physical traits, and genetic COI test results for each of your dogs. Embark's test results are accepted by the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals for all conditions where OFA has an established DNA registry. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to help manage their breeding program. From improving genetic health and diversity to screening for disease mutations, understanding traits, and a lot more. To save on better health, visit EmbarkVet.com and use code PUREDOGTALK to enjoy $20 off each kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PUREDOGTALK. We are back to talking about how changes in society affect our dogs. And I'm just going to use this as an example. It is not the only example, 
but it's such a glaring one. It's like the elephant in the room. And I kind of feel like we have to speak to it is that when these breeds were developed, generally in the last 100 to 200 years, they were developed for function, as we discussed, man intentional evolution. And part of that process was that the people who were creating these breeds found that some things helped them do their job, whether it was docking their tail, cropping their ears, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. We are now in fast forward 100 or 200 years, and we're in a different society. And in many places in the world, that society has deemed that these particular artifacts of 200 or 100 years ago are no longer necessary and are in fact barbaric. Now, I personally do not agree with this assessment, but this is what much of society in the morphing of society has decided. And so you posed the most fascinating question when we had this conversation. It's what got us started on this. And I will pose it back to you. Oh, great. (laughs) I probably don't have an answer, but go ahead. It's okay. Your question was, if society such as it is deems that it is no longer possible, legal, moral, ethical, what have you, to crop and or dock the particular breed with which you are involved, would you continue to breed those dogs? Mm. And that question that you posed to me brought me up short. That was like really by the short hairs. It's a very challenging discussion. And I want you to elucidate where you went with that, that art versus preservation piece, because I think that is so important. Yeah. And I think it's important to realize that this isn't something that's coming for many of us. It's something that's here. Exactly. I know that it's maybe less in your face at the moment in the United States, but certainly in Canada, it has become virtually impossible in most provinces to crop and or dock dogs anymore. So certainly in my province, I think it may actually even be illegal now. And what we saw here was that that change was led by the veterinary community. So it was not necessarily introduced through legislation. It was introduced through veterinary boards that oversee the licensing of veterinarians in each province. And those boards made a choice that those procedures were no longer acceptable or ethical according to their code of ethics. And therefore, veterinarians who performed those procedures in the province would not be granted a license to practice. So I find that to be an interesting thing because it's such a juxtaposition compared to the history of cropping and docking in other parts of the world. Cropping was outlawed in the United Kingdom at the end of the 1800s. That was a choice that was led from within the dog community. Those were dog folks having that discussion with themselves. And I'm going by memory, but I want to say maybe it was the Irish Terrier Club that had a particular role as a leader in that movement in the United Kingdom. 1800s. Okay. So dogs were no longer being cropped in the UK in the 1800s. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, if I look at the history of my breed, for example, and I would have to go look up the references. I want to say that it was maybe 1899 that it became true. But we saw almost a collapse in our breed, and particularly the standard Manchester Terrier, because the 
challenge of breeding a dog with the newly defined correct ear, which was a button ear rather than a, a cropped upright ear, was so difficult that many breeders felt it was impossible to achieve. And it certainly was not possible to achieve it in the short term. And because they were not able to do that in the short term, justifiably, I think, they questioned whether or not it was worthwhile continuing to breed. If you are breeding because you want to show and you cannot breed something that will meet the breed standards, will you continue to breed? And it's a historical example in my breed because it happens, you know, so long ago. And what we saw is that many of them did not, you know, the population plummeted. So kind of bringing that full circle, when we were talking the other week about that question that I asked, yes, I have had some conversations with breeders affected by changes in our environment here in Canada, our regulatory environment, and the challenges that that poses. And I've asked them the question, and the answers have been really, you know, quite interesting. I certainly know people here in my province who have had breeds that are affected by this change who have given up breeding. Mm. And there's lots of reasons for that. Some of them are practical reasons. If you breed Dobermans and you live in Nova Scotia and you can't proper dock them, you may have a difficult time breeding to the American stud dog of your dreams. Right. So there's a difficulty there as far as, you know, just achieving what it is that you want to achieve. Mm -hmm. The other side of that, though, is this tension between breeding as an art form versus breeding for preservation. And for many of us, there's an interplay there. I mean, if they're not mutually exclusive, and see, I think that's really kind of, as I said, originally the point of the sphere. Mm -hmm. So if you're breeding to preserve and it's an art form, now you're up against it, right? If your art form involves cropped or docked individuals and you want to preserve the history and the function of the breed, and the art has it be a specific way, and you're unable to then meet that aesthetic, is it preserving the breed? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on what the essence of your breed is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's think about a few examples. So, for example, if I'm talking about a Lakeland Terrier. Sure. You don't remove a great deal of a Lakeland Terrier's tail. Right. So if you could no longer remove that, I'm going to say a third yeah, of the tail, about. does that change the outline of that dog to such a degree that you would no longer be able to appreciate it as a beautiful animal? I have a hard time with that. Right. I have a hard time, and I say this as someone who does not have a breed that's directly affected. I breed right. 20 Manchesters. I don't have standard. They are cropped. Right. My breed is not cropped, or my variety is not cropped. Right. So I say this from a position, recognizing that I am coming from a position of privilege, mm -hmm. in that it's not something I need to deal right. with. Right. You're not going to have to make that call. So right. another interesting piece in the society morphs in this basic vicinity 
when in Scotland they made docking of reeds illegal, mm-hmm. there was a resistance, I don't think is the right word, but there was a complaint from the people who had working gun dogs and other working breeds, but specifically I know about working gun dogs. Mm-hmm. And they did a study and the people who had working dogs said, we dock these dogs for a very specific reason. And it is to save them pain and anguish later in their lives due to tail injuries. Mm-hmm. Well, they did a study. They followed this. And it turns out that, yes, the dogs were having far more tail injuries. And in Scotland specifically, they actually lifted that ban on docking specifically for working breeds. Well, and I think that there is a great case to be made for dogs that continue to work that have procedures done in order to allow them to do so. Right. I think that's a defensible position. My background is in communication. So I always look at things kind of through a communications lens. Right. One of the things I've struggled with, and I certainly have, you know, supported my friends and breeds that have struggled with this cropping and docking issue. But one of the things I always ask myself is, is this a winnable argument Mm -hmm. in the court of public opinion? Right. And I think that we have to be realistic about that. And that's not to say that we have to roll over and take it. It's not to say that we have to not fight like hell against things that we don't agree with. But it does mean that we have to realistically assess our chances of success and plan accordingly. So as an example, again, I kind of keep coming back to my own breed because this has been such a theme for us over the last 150 years, 140 years. Our breed allows for three acceptable ear types. In the 1800s, cropping was it. They were all cropped. That was it. I mean, there were multiple ear types, but cropping was it. Mm -hmm. We move into the 1900s. Obviously, the toy folks had it a little easier. We just went to an upright ear because they're small and that was easy to do. The standard people slogged through in Europe. I'm speaking about Europe. They slogged through and established a button ear. And the people in my breed today... Whether it's because of pressure from cropping or docking or just personal preferences, I don't know. But I have seen a tremendous upsurge in the last 15 years or so among standard Manchester breeders to try to establish that button ear Mm -hmm. in the United States and Canada as an alternative to cropping. And regardless of what the reason is that they're doing that, the end net result is that if and or when, depending on your assessment of the situation, it comes to pass that we are no longer as a collective group able to crop and dock anymore, or crop in this case, Mm -hmm. then that population is insulated a little from that impact. Right, right. And so, you know, I always kind of look at it through that lens of, okay, so, you know, where are we here? And I think we have to recognize Regardless of where we stand on the issue, we have to recognize where the other side of that argument is coming to it from. And 
how the things that we say will sound to them, regardless of whether we're right or we're wrong. Right. As society morphs, as dogs morph along with us, whose job is it to say what we do with our dogs? We consider our dogs to be our, in the legalistic term of it, property. Mm -hmm. So why is it okay for someone to dictate, if you will, to me, what is acceptable procedure with my legalistically property? Yeah, I don't have an answer. I mean, I guess what I would say is that we view them as property and society more and more sees them as family members. Certainly sentient beings with rights. And that's not a new concept. Even in the 1800s, there's records of legal cases where farm animals were assigned some sort of legal standing as, you know, an individual with inalienable rights. Mm -hmm. So whether or not we agree with that doesn't really matter. What matters is what society thinks. But I think as groups of breeders, we have to think more about where our breeds are going to be in 50 years and how we're going to make sure that they're still here. And that may require us to make hard choices. It may require us to make backup plans Mm -hmm. and to plan breedings that have alternate agendas other than, you know, producing your next best in show winner. Right. And those are hard things. Well, as I said, when we started this conversation, I think that there is so much to think about and to have intelligent, thoughtful, not attacking sorts of conversations because these are our topics. You know, these are are topics that are near and dear and close to a lot of hearts in this world. And everybody's got a really strong opinion about it. So I think it's great to be able to just kind of talk through some of it. If you've devoted your entire life to a breed, and the difference is that you can't crop it or you can't dock it, or perhaps both, depending on your breed, Mm -hmm. would you be willing to not only not have that breed in your life, but to actually see it disappear completely because of that. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer either, but it is the question. And these are the kinds of things that are important to think about. And it's why I have you come on the show because I love talking to you and I love the way your brain works. And it is important for all of us to have these kinds of things, not just as a passing fancy as I run up to grab my next blue ribbon. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I thoroughly enjoy thinking about why we do what we do. Right. And there's not a better person to have a conversation about that with than you, I think. Well, okay. Our mutual admiration society has come to an end. So, (laughs) Thanks, Amanda. I always appreciate it. Thanks, Laura. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, 
this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.